Greetings and welcome to this, the seventh episode of Here's the Thing, Eight Minute Movies, some combination of those titles in some order. Hello, I am Kieran, and with me today is my special guest, Peter. I'm I'm not really a special guest. Well, you are special, and I guessed you were here. <laughs> I guess we're going to have to just roll with this intro, because this is like the 23rd take. <laughs> you know what they say, if you haven't got it on take 17, have a nervous breakdown. Yes. Um, <laughs> how are you doing today? I, I'm doing all right. You know, I I have a new musical keyboard because my old one broke. Uh, the pitch bend wheel went weird, and so when I played any music, it just all sounded drunk. I I imagine that would be really useful if you were like a composer for Doctor Who, or uh, possibly yeah. <laughs> if I wanted to record stuff that uh, deliberately sounded off kilter, though, I could have easier approaches than just relying on the gradual degradation of technology <laughs> entropy is not the best uh yeah it's very authentic though <laughs> i'm fine thanks thanks for asking thanks thanks look we've been through this before <laughs> <laughs> we your state of being it becomes abundantly clear in the process of <laughs> recording this and <laughs> there's no need to go through the niceties <laughs> i think i think it's clear from the fact that we're um 12 minutes into the recording uh and the finished product will be perhaps one um <laughs> no go on how are you explain it in detail yeah i'm all right <laughs> all right okay good right. i had to carry some heavy things earlier and because i haven't done any exercise whatsoever since 2019 my gross flabby body has started to disintegrate speaking of uh, bodies starting to disintegrate what are we doing here uh, oh, oh, God, uh, I really don't want to do it. Um, <laughs> well, you we, gotta. <laughs> just, just before the podcast, we we argued about whose turn it was to introduce the concept, and I almost successfully got away with it not being me, but it is my turn. Um, all right, I was once crowned man who knows most about the 1982 movie The Thing at a severe cost to social skills and other you know, more useful general knowledge. And Peter here is a normal, well, a relatively normal human being who has only seen the film perhaps once or twice. Um, because he hasn't managed to escape my Saw-style dungeon yet, I'm exposing him to the movie in tiny chunks, and we are going to talk about those chunks in excruciating detail until one of us cracks. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> there, that was pretty good. Yes, uh, neither of us have cracked yet. <laughs> yes, we're we're playing the thing chicken. Um, in addition to which, um, as as part of this exercise of driving each other psychologically over the brink, anytime one of us says the word thing, but is just using it as a verbal placeholder for a word, you get a ding. Thing equals ding. Why did we think of that seven episodes in? <laughs> yeah. That's a 
passable name for the game. <laughs> thing equals ding. We both have our thing dingers. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm liking the name Nest less now as we yeah. <laughs> Me too. Me too. I regretted <laughs> saying it as soon as I said it. <laughs> oh, I'm going to print you a label that says thing dinger so you can put it right on there. Mm. Uh, uh. <laughs> Oh, sorry, I'm having a break now. Okay, so right into the first. No, I'm not going to call it a section. I always call it a section. What what word? What's another word for section, Peter? Uh, segment. I think we I think we used segment. Yeah. What's another one? Do we need to use a different one every week? I um yes. Um. All right. Uh. Part. Uh, part's a bit boring. But, all, all right. right. Oh, have you got a better um, one in you? Uh, oh, give me a second. Uh, uh, there's one on the tip of my tongue. A chapter. Should we go with chapter? <laughs> yeah. All right. It's 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 very grandiose. I like it. Yeah. Um, and here we enter the first chapter of the podcast. Yes. Um, which we've definitely always always called. Let's not talk about the thing. A section in which I bore Peter for several minutes with something tangentially related to the thing um, to bulk up the time on the podcast a little bit. What you got for me this week, Kieran? I'm not sure if that was too honest. Um, I am going to talk at you about Who Goes There? The short story that The Thing is based on. All right. The Thing is originally based on a science fiction horror novella called Who Goes There? Written by American writer John W. Campbell Jr. It was first published in the August 1938 issue of Astounding Science Fiction, a popular magazine. He wrote under the pen name of Don A. Stewart. Uh, He'd actually only just recently been made editor of Astounding Science Fiction as well, so uh, there's a thing. Thank you. Um, The film is a mostly faithful retelling with a few differences, probably the biggest of which is The Alien. Um, in the original short story, it's got an actual form with three hateful burning red eyes and blue worms for hair. And also it's telepathic. It can still shape change, obviously, but that's its default form, the worm-headed alien. Mm. The crew finds spaceship, thaw it out, and it ends up assimilating a dog. They try a blood test, but it doesn't work. They figure out that you can burn the blood to see what happens. One of the crew is isolated from the rest of the others, and it turns out that he has a little surprise for them. So, you know... The bulk of it is very similar. Mm. The movie's a bit streamlined, bringing the 37 characters at Big Magnet down to the 12 that we know at Outpost 31. And it replaces the discovery of the alien with the Norwegian base and the dog section. Um, why is it called Big Magnet? Uh, because they're researching magnetic phenomena, which is what leads them to the UFO in the first place. All right. Uh, that's actually basically the start of the 1950s film as well. They, um, they're at the North Pole doing magnetic research and the things spaceship crashes and that's what leads them to it in that movie um it's actually been there a lot longer in the short story than it was in our film they find it buried in the ice and it's been there at least 20 million years as we discussed the backscatter effect last time it's uh only about a hundred thousand on earth or maybe yeah. it's older who knows in 2018, it was found that Who Goes There was actually a shortened version of a larger novel previously written by Campbell. The expanded manuscript, which was titled Frozen Hell, was found in a box of manuscripts sent by Campbell to Harvard University. Can you imagine just finding 
it blows my mind that they found a full a fuller version of it you know 80 years later mm. and it's it's very interesting it's still generating interest to this day like you know people are making new films about it idiots are talking about it on podcasts yeah it's uh it's not something that had crossed my radar really until you'd introduced it to me but um now you know can't stop hearing about it <laughs> is that because i just won't leave you alone yeah i've tried desperately mm. to stop hearing about it but <laughs> you um, can't escape i um said no please don't make me record this podcast but um <laughs> that's when you uh, took one of my fingers um <laughs> uh, stop being a baby it was only a little one <laughs> all right now we enter chapter the second god hate that <laughs> Re- regret this chapter thing already uh well I- i'm probably not going to do musical ones for the rest of them which is your questions from last time questions from you peter and the listener all right in the spirit of how this podcast is going this isn't really a question you had at all okay right but this is the chapter for those um last time we spoke about blair's formulae for working out how long it'll take to convert the whole earth yes um, and I wanted to work out how long it should take to convert a whole human being. Okay. Uh, last time we brought up the chessboard problem, you know, that if you put one grain of rice on the first square and then double it each time, eventually you end up with a massive, seemingly impossible number. Yes. Um, 18 quintillion grains of rice. Yes. Um, so the conversion process, as we see it in the film, takes about 10 seconds to assimilate a human cell. Right? Yeah. But it's exponential or possibly geometric. I don't really know the difference. Yeah. So one cell takes over one cell, then two cells take over two more cells, and so on and so forth. Right? Mm-hmm. You with me so far? Yeah. I feel like I should have a whiteboard. So human beings, and this is your this is your fact for the day, have approximately thirty eight trillion cells in their bodies. Mm-hmm. That's that's more than you think, right? Or less than you think? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I, I've never had a thought about how many cells there were in the human body. I, I started counting once, but I um I, I lost track about halfway you lost, through. Yeah, yeah, you lose track eventually. Um, so if you've got about thirty-eight trillion cells in your body, the assimilation process is complete somewhere between the forty-sixth and forty-seventh square on the chessboard. So that's forty-six steps to be fully assimilated. Yeah, which will take about eight minutes. Okay. Um, interestingly, in the book, Blair estimates the assimilation process will take about an hour. So, is my math completely wrong, or <laughs> I, does he know I, something we don't? I think that sounds plausible. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it was more than that, because like that, what you're doing there is make making the assumption that um, each cell is, is infecting two more cells right mm. that's that's the the maths that you're using there yeah um but of course each cell can infect more than two cells oh absolutely yes um, yes it's, uh... so we think that it's going to be some sort of exponential thing but uh it could be faster um <laughs> yeah <laughs> No, I meant exponential thing and the, the, the cells, the other thing. I'm not, I'm not having that. I'm not having that. That's bullshit and you know it. Uh, I do know it, yeah. Um, 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 so, yeah, no, I think eight minutes sounds sounds approximately right to me. 
It's interesting because, uh, as we'll see later on, someone gets infected on camera in front of everybody else, and they sure seem to be taking on thing-like qualities much quicker than I thought they would. Yeah, but maybe that's very surface level, you know. Mm. And I mean, um, as we've mentioned before, it does kind of, like it does kind of try to overwhelm you to get as much of its body mass in you. This this is if you just get one one thing cell on you. Yeah. And it, I suppose it doesn't take into account if your body has any sort of defense against it whatsoever. I assume it doesn't really because of how yeah. it's a completely alien phenomena. Yeah. Um, yeah. Plus also in the book, one of the things the thing does is... Um, shit, I thought I got away with that. <laughs> I hesitated. <laughs> I knew I shouldn't have hesitated. Um, one, one of the chapters the thing gets away with is... Um, <laughs> <laughs> can't just insert random words <laughs> make a nonsense of this podcast by by the end of this by the end of this i'm going to be in a in an asylum or something from this anyway who who says that words have to have meanings peter so something that the thing tries to do in the book is take over the brain as quickly as possible so that it can do the rest of the body at its leisure mm. so it, it like they notice that in the autopsies of the dogs that the brain has been supplanted by thing tissue very quickly. Right. But then again, we aren't really using the book as a thing. That's true. It's inadmissible as evidence. Yes. It's circumstantial at best. I don't know what that means. <laughs> um, yes. So um, eight minutes are an hour. What do you think at home? Write in or don't. We're recording all of these in advance. You'll never be able to tell. Um Right. So now we move into the third chapter of our magnum opus. Let's talk about the thing. This is the part of the podcast where we talk about the thing. Yes. We are going to watch moments 48 to 56 of the movie. I mean, they're minutes. I don't know why I called them moments. (laughs) I... I think I might have destroyed the language center of my brain, <laughs> Peter. Like, words don't mean anything to me anymore. It would be much harder to segment up the movie if we were just doing it in eight moments at a time. <laughs> eight, like, eight arbitrary moments. Is that... Was that a moment? Who can say? <laughs> I... I think I might possibly be the first person who's decided to record a podcast which has then given them aphasia. Uh, <laughs> I do so look forward to being patient zero. <laughs> right, briefly returning to the real world and the point of all of this noise making. What usually happens at this point is we go over what you thought would have happened next. Yes. What I have written down here of what you thought is Bennings is doing a shriek and then they are going to set him on fire, possibly with the flamethrower, possibly with gasoline. What actually happened, Peter? Um. So... They, they, he, he admits a, a big shriek. That, he does, that he does a shriek. Uh, and then was set on fire with gasoline, in fact. Um, mm. And then later with a flamethrower. Yeah, well, they, they, so, they double down. So bo- both things sort of happen. Yes. Um, the next thing that we ask is, uh, who do you think is infected? And you said Norris and possibly not that contentiously, Bennings. Um, yes. 
I mean, I think he's infected. It does also look a little bit like in in the shot that we start on that he's just been caught running off with all the pepper armies. Um, <laughs> no, no, you guys. I was just holding these tree branches. Ah, yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, who's not infected? We've got Blair. Um, we think he's been exposed, but he's safe right now. Yeah. Uh, Fuchs, Windows, Knowles, and Clark. Everybody else is firmly in the perhaps section. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm glad I managed to make it through that without saying a hard maybe, which is a really weird phrase that I've been trying to get away from. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, it's time for me and Peter to settle in. And watch Moments 48 to 56. Uh, consult your Moment tracking card at home to know precisely when those are. Uh, again, we must strongly remind you to not watch the movie in this fashion at all. Why would you do that? So how we usually do this is I am going to read out a bulleted list of things. <sighs> a bulleted list of action points from the film, summarizing 20 or 30 seconds of action. And if you, Peter, or I, not Peter, have anything to say about them, we will say it with our mouths at that time. Yes. That all makes sense. It does. I'm glad. I'm glad it does. I need help. The Bennings thing emits a terrible howl. Yes, uh, we, we knew this was coming. It's a very um, distinctive scream. Uh, what is it made of, Kieran? Uh, yeah, I actually have a quote here from the website that we found earlier from the producer. Bennings Roar was created by custom recording human screams and then having them individually synthesized by an audio engineer called Craig Harris. These were later combined on the mixing stage with other non-human sounds and additionally processed to give you that haunting forever lost in hell effect. All right. When, when you say forever lost in hell effect, was that a quote from the website? Yes. It's all, it's all one quote. All right. I just thought you might be being unusually poetic. <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> Write that down in your, um, in your book of tracking my descent into madness while recording this podcast. <laughs> So th there's something at the end of the screen that really reminded me of the the T-Rex roar in Jurassic mm. Park. So I wonder whether there's a bit of baby elephant in this too. Who knows? <laughs> As an aside, I often wish that I could just be like a, a sound engineer or a Foley guy, just like standing around and you hear a door slam and you're like, oh, I like that. <laughs> Do that yeah. again. Uh, we talked about it before. It's, it's an yeah. odd... A job to do but um it, it is quite fun i wish i could do a bit more of it actually because it, it's fun just figuring out ways to make stuff sound like stuff what a joyful life it must be to take a spoonful of mayonnaise out of the jar have a eureka moment and come back with seven microphones to do it again yeah mccready kicks over a barrel of gasoline and ignites it with a flare burning the creature so um that's just a rubber model of Bennings with uh, something inside it to wobble it um, as it catches fire. Oh, really? Okay. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, they didn't really burn the actor alive, Peter. Uh, I don't think that's what I was saying there, really. I didn't notice very much wobbling, though. I'd have to watch that again. Later, inside, Gary argues with McCready about Bennings. So, 
this is another of those scenes that was added later as a further explanation for the audience. Right. Um, He's seeming like he's not especially in control here, actually. Uh, Yeah, I, I very much agree with you. It does seem this is the first real point where Gary just seems to have given up. Yeah, because he seems, hope. yeah, he seems very on top of things up until this point. Mm. Even if he's like in his dressing gown or whatever, and not oh, in, uh, very authoritative, he's uh, he's like in charge, mm. and he seems in charge. And here, he just seems kind of lost. I mean, uh, I think we briefly discussed his backstory at some point, where he's supposed to be a military man, which is why mm-hmm. he wears those those sort of army khakis and why he carries the gun around at all times. Yeah, um, but. I think he's past his prime at this point. Like, what, I mean, imagine if he was a, a commander of some sort in the past. That yeah, he's on the downslope to retirement at this point, isn't he? Like, he's working at an Antarctic science base, which is hardly yeah. the um, you know, he's he's not going to be presented with challenges like this every yes. day. Um, I guess uh, also just none of his training would have prepared him for a situation no like absolutely this. absolutely it's something yeah. so out of his um ballywick that uh who knows what may happen and yeah. um it is an interesting point that um mccready starts taking the lead a lot more strongly here so again we've spoken about him and how he doesn't really want to be in charge but it's sort of thrust upon him by yeah. gary's breakdown yeah uh in the short story actually um McCready is just second in command of the base. Uh, when it starts becoming clear that Gary is under suspicion of being a thing, all of his duties just fall to McCready. Right. Who I think he's a meteorologist in the short story rather than a helicopter pilot. Okay. Outside, the men dig a hole and put the bodies in it. McCready burns it all with a flamethrower. From the director's commentary, Kurt Russell had a lot of fun when he was using the flamethrower on things. <laughs> One time he played a prank on John Carpenter where he got the makeup team to make him look like he'd been really burned, like and cover him in bandages. Um, and he like got the whole crew in on it except for Carpenter. And like just went up to him, was like, John, I, I got really badly burned during that shoot. I can't, I can't work anymore. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> John Carpenter apparently saw through it right away, but he, he was like, are they all in on it? What's going on here? <laughs> he was like, I know this is fake, but I can't really go uh, get back to work, you know, <laughs> stop, stop screwing <laughs> around just in case he is really badly burned. <laughs> <laughs> the men watch it all burn. They notice Blair is missing. I am. Um, I'm thinking about this burning of the, uh, of the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and just wondering what their plan is for this because it should, I, I think like the safest thing as has been demonstrated um, yeah you're right um, but, um, <laughs> but I think the safest approach would be to bury it in the ice that's a really interesting I was going to say thing but that I, I'm not going to because you'll, you'll ding your little thing dinger um, <laughs> oh god why, why is that the accepted term now um, yeah, it's a really interesting point that you have made there, Peter. Yeah. Um, I think the reason they don't immediately go with refreezing it is because then they'd still have access to it. Uh, right. Remember what Blair was saying. Well, remember what Blair is about to be saying that you know a single cell of this thing will end the world. Yeah. So putting it on ice until 
you can get rid of it later seems like a great idea, but if anything gets to it in the meantime, or if any of them is already a thing, they can just yeah. pop back out for a, a top-up. I'm not sure that's how it works, uh, <laughs> now that I've said it. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm just uh, I, I'm, I'm just thinking that uh, it was buried in the ice for many, many, many years, mm. so it seems likely that it is not capable ordinarily without help of escaping mm. from the ice yeah that's true um yeah i suppose you do have to consider as well that it was probably colder when it crashed um yeah um 100 million years ago or whenever or 100,000 years or 20 million but yeah yeah um freezing it does seem like a, a way at least of stopping it rather than um I mean, setting it on fire does work, but you really do have to burn absolutely every last cell, which sort of strongly suggests it doesn't really work. I mean, like yeah. they, they burn all that stuff, but they they know for a fact at this point that burning it doesn't stop it because the Norwegians burned them. And um, look what happened to poor Bennings. Yes. Yeah. Dissolving them in acid also seems like an interesting uh, technique, and that will come up very, very, very briefly soon. <laughs> Not in this episode, but soon. Okay. Fuchs talks to MacReady. He can't find Blair. So did you notice the sort of deep blue lighting on everything here? Um, these are airport markers uh, that they shipped all the way up there to uh, to light the set with. All right. Yeah. Um, it's Dean Cundy, the cinematographer again, but really, it's a really good effect. You do, I mean, you sort of feel cold, even though it's just a film. Yeah, it's uh, it's good use of lighting, except mm. if you're um, watching that print that we watched at the Prince Charles Cinema. <laughs> oh, that that's a deep cut that will require explaining. <laughs> I think we explained it a few podcasts oh, ago. That maybe we, went, we did. Yeah, we we, we yeah. went to, we went to see it, and uh, it was the it's the only seventy millimeter print left, and um, because it's not been stored properly and it's almost forty years old, it's gone orange. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it's still surprisingly watchable, though. It's just every time they come outside, you're like, why is Antarctica pink? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> MacReady notices Blair running into the base near the helicopters. Now, when we were watching this, I asked you to keep an eye on Blair at this point. Now, now, do you have anything that you noticed? Yes, yes. Very good. <laughs> well, I noticed that. I noticed that you just said that. Um, oh, very but... good. Very good. Yes. <laughs> Uh, apart from that, um, we don't really see his face, um, and he's wearing a a jacket that later he is not wearing. At least mm. um, we don't really know for sure that whoever runs in definitely is Blair. It sort of makes sense that it's Blair, and never denies that, but it might not be. Do you um do you want to know the uh the sad mundane prosaic reason why it doesn't look exactly like Blair? Uh, is it because it's a different actor? That's correct. It's not Wilford Brimley because of his tight scheduling conflicts. He wasn't able to go to any of the on-location filming. So anytime yeah. you see Blair outside, he's heavily disguised. So it's it's a different actor playing him. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's that's why it's never Blair outside. Because I was thinking about this a little bit, and I was thinking, well, if it's not Blair, then who that implies that it's someone who is the thing, maybe. Hmm. But what would the thing have to gain from 
breaking the helicopter. Yes, it doesn't make any sense from the thing's point of view. And yeah. um, but it, I mean, it is, it is a nicely paranoid thing that um, it, it may not be who it, who you think it is. Um, yes, all right, but um, yeah, it's it's literally not Wilford Brimley because um, he couldn't carve out the weeks to travel up to British Columbia to film this. So yeah, but you, you only ever see Blair inside. Anytime you see someone else see him outside, it's just somebody else dressed up like him. Yeah, but because of all of that, I'm prepared to kind of take it at face value, and it is Blair, and yes. it is supposed to be Blair. That's that's where I would go with it as well. Yeah. yeah. Macready inspects the helicopters and finds them smashed. I pointed out the little flashlight that he finds to you as well, um, and that's just because in the director's commentary, uh, John Carpenter and Kurt Russell have a little mini breakdown about why is the flashlight there, just purely so that he can see this. <laughs> <laughs> that's the the only reason it's there, so he can light up the inside of the helicopter and see everything is smashed. I don't know. You don't really question it. Sometimes there are flashlights. <laughs> Sometimes there are flashlights. Exactly. Yeah. Looking back on it now, like um, he he does a little oh a flashlight look as he picks it up and he's like, what an what an amazing random happenstance. <laughs> yeah, really put all of his years of acting experience into <laughs> noticing that flashlight. I went to Rada. <laughs> Probably didn't go to Rada. No. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he actually got an Oscar for uh, noticing the flashlight. Um, mm, yeah. <laughs> flashlight actually got uh, best supporting actor. Um, mm, yeah, uh, I'm. I'm actually surprised though um, that he didn't hear more of the helicopter smashing. Yeah, happening. that's interesting. It's just a little tinkle, but um, when you look inside the helicopter, it is ruined. It is very ruined. Yeah, it's like there's been a lot of work done on that. It looks like that would take more than a couple of seconds to mm. achieve. Yeah. It's not the inside of a real helicopter when he opens it like, you know, he's approaching a perfectly good helicopter on the ground. They open it and it cuts to a set where they've got a much larger uh, model of a helicopter all smashed up on the inside. Nice. Because helicopters are expensive and you don't want to smash them. Yeah, it'd be good if they were just like, oh, um, Wilford Brimley, just go to town on this real helicopter. <laughs> yeah, this, <laughs> this helicopter costs $20,000. Smash it up. Smash it up. He hears a gunshot and runs inside. Everyone is cowering near the radio room. Blair is inside with a gun. Blair is smashing up the radio equipment with an axe. Uh, so we were talking about this a little bit before we recorded, but um, I, f I feel like it makes me a very different person from Wilford Brimley that uh, his favourite scene to film was the autopsy one earlier and not the one where they give him an axe and he just gets to yell loudly and smash up a bunch of electronics i know right it's yeah. it seems great doesn't it um i uh, i'm calling it now like 2021 you know screw escape rooms the new thing will be just given an axe and put in a room and told to smash stuff up Smash rooms. Smash yeah. rooms. They'd, they'd be so expensive to run. Though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's think about this. I mean, all you need to do is find a building that's undergoing demolition. Oh, I expect you probably have to demolish them in the right way. Maybe this is yeah. a terrible idea. I, I thought I, for a minute there I'd got my new business idea. I think there's going to be some insurance issues with this <laughs> idea as well. <laughs> no, it's fine. They, they sign a waiver and wear a hard hat. You're fine. <laughs> <laughs> 
say, I mean, you can get insured to operate something like Diggerland. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure Smash Rooms are going to be allowable. So presumably this could only be done in a single take because they didn't have replacements for a lot of this stuff. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I was going to say, they they just set up two cameras on Wilford Brimley and told him to fucking go for it. Yeah. <laughs> Again, like, yeah, what a, what a great job acting is sometimes. You get handed an axe and told to ruin a room full of equipment. Child says Blair has smashed up their vehicles and killed the rest of the dogs. So, again, something I pointed out to you here was uh, Keith David's weird-looking hand. Did you notice anything weird about it? No, I, d- I didn't really. Maybe I had the screen too small. It, his hand looks kind of weird and rubbery here. Um, mm. And it's because, yeah, just before they did the on-set filming, he broke his hand in a car accident. Oh. So he's wearing a cast over his hand to stop it from moving. But they had to paint it black with like his skin tone. <laughs> so, okay. it's not, so if you if you ever notice it in the shot, his um his I think it's his left hand is just massive compared to his other hand. Or is the, he a thing? Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's actually one of the shots which shows it off the worst is uh hmm. like he's whenever he's in this shot, he's trying to put his hand like in through other doorways nearby. Uh, mm-hmm. When he runs up, he ducks behind McCready and he puts one hand on his shoulder and tucks the other hand behind him. <laughs> but it pops out eventually. <laughs> Blair raves about the thing. Oh, he gets some excellent lines here. Like uh, one of my favorite lines from the whole, this whole scene is great. Like this whole bit of the movie is great. But when he gets one of my favorite lines here, no dog can make it a thousand miles through the snow. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, you don't understand that thing wanted to be us. Uh, now I don't know though. I, 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 not that he's being the most rational at the moment, but um, I don't know whether this line of reasoning really holds. <laughs> I'm not convinced that it really needed to be humans. But man is the warmest place to hide, Peter. Mm. Also, um. um and I don't remember enough about the prequel to know how they ex- explain that actually happens. And as we've discussed before, we're not necessarily relying on the prequel mm. either. But it's circumstantial um, at best. Yeah, um, it's it's conjecture, maybe. Yep. <laughs> exactly circumstantial. Mm. But what occurred to me is that are we to assume that through its time in the Norwegian base? It never became a human at all. Oh no, it does. It does assimilate a whole bunch of people. Mm. I, I think. I think it has the template of man. But um, yeah. if you follow the timeline of the end of the prequel through to this one, I mean, what happens is um, it turns into a dog and GTFOs um, yeah. running towards the American base, and dogs can run quite fast on yeah. snow i guess so it's uh, so it's traveling across the land it's being pursued by people who try and shoot it there's that whole kerfuffle we already discussed at the start yeah. of the film uh, and then i guess it would just give the game of it immediately turned into mary elizabeth winstead right now and was like oh thanks guys i'm not a monster <laughs> <laughs> but uh, look I, I i guess my point is that is no particular reason why i i i don't think there's a particular reason why it couldn't have made it a thousand miles across the ice to answer your questions here yeah in the novelization 
of which is based on the original shooting script. So yeah. uh, it includes stuff which has been taken out or whatever. They explain that during the Antarctic winter, there aren't even really any sort of skewer gulls that arrive. That's one of the reasons they wanted to burn everything is like the, they worried the gulls would turn up, eat thing matter, become things and then fly. Right. Because they can fly a very long way. Um, okay. And um, the dogs do, they do try, they do try a, um, when it reali- when the thing realizes that it's not getting its own way with these people, it converts one of the dogs, leads the uh, leads two of the others, which are not things, on a trek across the ice to try and make it to McMurdo Station. Right, and McCready and Childs and Bennings all go on a midnight ride on um, snowmobiles and take it, like chase them across the ice. Yeah, and one of the things they find is that um, the thing dog brought the other two dogs along basically as a snack so um so it reckons it can you know a single dog might not be able to make it all the way across the ice but several dogs using other ones as sort of you know portable snack reservoirs yeah might be able to i guess also just thinking about what what the plan is here because if the plan is just to kill everyone and make sure they don't make it out i mean unless he's got a nuke in there and he can just kind of blow the whole thing to smithereens, then all that's going to happen is at some point a team is going to come and investigate and then there's going to be a problem. I think Blair has started to have a little breakdown. Yes. um, Oh yeah. And another sort of deleted scene here, you know, blah, blah, usual disclaimers apply is that just precedently to this, he went to Gary, you know, before he went mysteriously missing a little while ago, he went to Gary and said, we have to radio them and say, nobody can hear. There's some sort of horrendous crisis here. We can't have anyone coming here. And Gary was like, nope, the second that we get radio contact, we're bringing the experts in to try and figure this out. And Blair knows that's a terrible idea because, you know, even if you bring in the smartest people in the world, like this is a situation that nobody's ever had before and they're going to fuck something up and it's going to get out. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, I mean, it's difficult to know what the good approach would be, but it, it... I think it's um, hands face space, isn't it? <laughs> that's the one. Yeah. Um, but it brings me back to if they can become reasonably certain about who isn't infected, then maybe the best approach would just be to bury it in the ice mm. and make sure it stays there. I, I can't think of a better plan, really. Yeah, yeah. I guess if I was in this situation, I would. I don't know if I was like Blair. I'd. I'd I mean, I'd want to know who was on my side. Basically, I'd, I'd want to yeah. do what he does, which is either kill everyone who isn't me, yeah, um, or hopefully imprison them in such a way that I can perform my tests to figure out what exactly is going on. Then let perhaps the military know, or let someone know that this facility needs to be quarantined and destroyed, basically. Mm. The thing role-playing aside, um, you did ask me a little while ago what specifically he says, and I dug it all out from the script. Okay. It's interesting, actually, because the others are talking over him, and he's kind of muttering, so some of this I haven't really heard quite clearly, especially the bit at the end. So he says, uh, if anybody interferes, I'll kill him. Just leave it here. We're going to talk. Nobody talk to nobody. Nobody gets in and out of here. Nobody. You guys think I'm crazy. Well, that's fine. Most of you don't know what's going on around here. Well, I'm damn well sure some of you do. Do you think that thing wanted to be an animal? No dogs can make it a thousand miles through the cold. Nah, you don't understand. That thing wanted to be us. If a cell gets out, it could imitate everything on the face of the earth, and it's not going to stop. Good. Spooky. All right. 
Child distracts Blair. I, uh, I I love this bit where Kurt Russell sticks his head around the door and says, no, Blair, you don't want to hurt anyone. Blair shoots him. Uh- <laughs> yeah. Also, he, t- he tells... Um, I can't remember who he t- says it to, but he tells them to go and get a table. Yeah, McCready tells Norris to go and get a card table from the rec room. Right. Which is interesting to me, because uh, I hadn't really remembered that detail before, or, or much of this, to be honest. But um, it's interesting that that's the plan. That's that's <laughs> like plan A, because it seems like a very improvised method of taking someone down. I think the thing is, I mean, because obviously Gary could just shoot him, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I think, I think they don't want to hurt him. I think they, they do realize that he's, you know, I mean, he's a friend of theirs and, yeah. uh, like, you know, aside from that, a valuable colleague at this point, uh, just blowing him away might not be the best idea. But he does have a gun and an axe. Um, Yeah. I guess it's effective, just getting a big flat thing and smushing him against the wall. Well, I mean, I don't know how effective it is, because he swings that axe clean through that table, so... (laughs) Well, it embeds itself, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Blair's line here, where he, the delivery, where he's like, I'll kill you! That's like... that. Maybe my favorite line of the movie, and it's 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 Kurt Russell's favorite line as well. Like on the director's commentary, and gets to this bit, he just cracks up. <laughs> Absolutely excellent. He fires at Charles five times, and then he throws the gun. Why does he throw the gun? Why do you always throw the gun? He misses quite badly with all of the shots and the gun. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess he's he probably realizes he's having better success with the axe. Mm. Oh, dear. <laughs> Why would you throw the gun? The men rush Blair with the card table and knock him unconscious. So, um, yeah, we were discussing a little bit earlier about why, you know, Wilford Brimley didn't think this was his favorite scene to film the movie. And it's because um, he was rushed with five guys with a table. He was worried mm-hmm. he was like, he's in his 50s. He was worried he's just going to be decimated. <laughs> yeah. I was pointed out to you. During the um, during the watch just before the recording, that he looks behind himself as he's running backwards just to make sure he's not going to trip over anything. <laughs> well, it's it's very subtle. I didn't pick up on it. <laughs> Clark runs to check on the dogs and finds them murdered with an axe. Yeah. So again, with this behaviour, is making me think that Clark is not a problem at the moment. Yeah, he's he he's got to be human at this point, right? Yeah. Um, also. I've got a note here just saying uh, you get the, really get the impression that he cares more about the dogs than he does the people at the base. Yeah. yeah. Three men take Blair outside to lock him into the tool shed. So, uh, again, it's not Blair. It's He's <laughs> got a, like a whole apparatus on his head so that you can't see his face. Because I wasn't sure whether he was still supposed to be unconscious at this point or not, but then I realized that his legs were moving. He's sort of walking. I guess it would be yeah. very awkward for them to just drag him. I don't think they even really knock him out. I just think having five guys kind of punch you would stun you a little bit. Yeah. They take him into the shed and inject him with sedatives. Uh, the injection scene here and another one later, every time they needed to inject somebody, uh, it's uh, Raymond Stella, their camera operator, just got injected. Um, <laughs> He said it was fine. They could just do it all the time, as much as they wanted. <laughs> uh, some people said to John Carpenter that the injections were much harder to watch than the monster shots of this film. So um, a-, a common phobia, I guess. Yeah, I don't necessarily like watching that, but I 
it didn't i don't feel like that affected me in, a, in any way watching that when i saw it i thought like you know when i was with my movie analysis hat and i was like oh, i must have been a stunt arm but no they just injected injected yeah. into a um into one of their camera people hmm. it's um it's actually um acid i think <laughs> <laughs> i assume it's just saline <laughs> no i've said before that i found the autopsy scenes harder to watch than mm-hmm. the um than the monster shots so far and i would so far if i had to rank them in order i would say autopsy is more difficult for me to watch than monster shots but monster shots are more difficult for me to watch than that injection <laughs> that that was fine blair says he doesn't know who to trust he says it with a little smile I, I guess the sedatives are kicking in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they just they just shot him full of morphine. He's going to say everything. It's <laughs> delighted at the moment. I love it. <laughs> Blair tells McCready to watch Clark. We think probably mistakenly then. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, but we have the benefit of um, yeah. following Clark via cutaways. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, we had earlier the reason that um, that Blair is particularly suspicious of Clark. Mm-hmm. So that. That's it's understandable, but he's probably barking up the wrong tree there. Yeah, so I've got two little notes here. Um, that one, this is really where the paranoia of the film kicks into high gear. So mm-hmm. from this point on, like Blair's telling McCready not to trust Clark. McCready doesn't know whether he can trust Blair or Clark, mm-hmm. and it's just going to snowball from here. Yeah, but also to us, it's pretty clear that Clark is innocent. Yeah. Um, but there's sort of a vestigial touch of an earlier script here where Clark, like they were trying to throw more suspicion on him. And right. I think we discussed it. We discussed it last time about how Bennings death in the theatrical version of the film is, you know, he gets thingized in that tiny room and then the, the others flamethrower him and they're like, Oh, oh so it can turn over people. Um, right. In the, one of the original shooting scripts, he w- was just found murdered like right. um, in the kennel. And that was supposed to throw like additional suspicion upon Clark. Okay. Um, but that they decided not to use that take in the end because, you know, it wasn't as interesting as uh, having him become a thing. Yeah. Um, all right. So that's all of moments 48 to 56. They're moments now. We're sticking with it. <laughs> um, so we move into the second to last chapter of this podcast. I'm really pleased I got through this without mentioning podcast meat at all. I, I, I want like a sticker or something. I am going to ask you some questions, Peter. All right. What happens next? What happens next? Um, okay, so where did we leave off? I think this is going to be a tough one for you. So uh, McCready and Blair are in, Blair sh- are in the tool shed, and Blair has just told him, I don't know who to trust. Don't trust Clark. Um, he yeah. says it better than that. I'm not an actor. <laughs> yeah no it it is a very tough one for me i don't remember what happens next um i think it feels to me like this all of this stuff has just happened mm-hmm. there's probably go, they're probably going to meet back up in the base and there's going to be some sort of argument that's about as accurate as i can get that, that that's all that's all I'm going to go with. They're going to get back into the base and there's going to be some kind of argument. They return to the base and there is some sort of argument. Yeah. I, I, I can't be any more specific than that because I, I really don't remember exactly what happens next. 
I've written it down so we can mm-hmm. review it next time. Who's infected? Um, I'm going to add a dead people list <laughs> right. to this. Who's dead? And we're going to put Bennings on it. Bennings well, is dead. Know, Bennings is dead, question mark. Um, I am going to say that in this whole last, uh, these last eight moments, um, <laughs> too much has happened and too many people have been together for any change to the infection track, yeah. I think. So it's remaining as who's infected? Definitely Norris. Uh, who's not infected? Blair. He's been exposed, but he's safe right now. Uh-huh. Fuchs, Windows, Knowles, and Clark, and everyone else is a maybe. Yeah, yes, I believe Clark is not infected. I believe Blair is not infected. Mm-hmm. Uh, or at least if not. he has been exposed, then he's not been taken over at, the, yeah. at this point. Even though uh, through our scientific research, we know it takes only eight minutes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I just don't think it's plausible that he would have behaved in the way that he behaves in this particular section. What do you think of Gary? I'm going to draw the spotlight back to him a little bit here. Um, well, there's a whole question around... Uh, no, he's not infected. I know he's not infected, actually. All right. I, I know he's not infected because I remember the point in the film later on where he gets infected. <laughs> Yeah, uh, you using your memory of future events is cheating, fucking I, precog. <laughs> I'm allowed to do that if I remember a thing, then, uh, and I'm using a thing in the sense of the thing. <laughs> if I remember a thing occurring, no. <laughs> <laughs> if I remember a capital T thing occurring, yeah. Then I'm allowed to know that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yes, I remember both how he gets infected and who does it as well mm. later on. And it, but it's late in the film, so he's definitely safe for now. And it is a it is a very good scene that uh, I, I rather like that one. But we will, of course, discuss it mm-hmm. at the appropriate hour. All right. That just remains for me to say. What are you thinking of the film so far? You've fractionally over half of it um yeah it's um it's really all coming together like you say the um the suspense is really kicking into gear now so i think um the the work of these last how many moments was it like 56 moments or so 56 moments the, the standard number of moments it's all been working up to getting the audience to to this point of just being not sure who to trust, and it's it's been very effective in in doing that. Like I say, that sequence that we just saw is um, one of my favorites, where he's smashing everything up and he gets some great lines. They beat him up, mm-hmm. lock him lock him in a shed. Oh, it's like one of my Saturday nights. Good um, stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to say, I, like, really into the good bits of the film now. It, I, I was going to say it's all downhill from here, but that's the wrong saying. Because I was like, it's all downhill because it's getting faster and more exciting. And I was like, but that sort of also implies it's getting worse. Yes, um, it does. I, yeah. Well, we've discussed, uh, do, you know, do you know what your favorite eight-minute um, segment is? Oh, that's 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 a really tough call. Um, mm. uh, it's going to be the one with the blood test in. I mean, yeah, that's a that's a good shout. We'll get to that later. Um, yeah. uh, 
because we were discussing that we could after this just order rank in order <laughs> the uh, our, our favorite segments and uh, then just re-edit a version of the film um in order of how much we we like the segment so that in theory we make a, uh, an edit of the film where it just gets better and better as it goes through <laughs> And then, um, I'll, then I'll send it to John Carpenter and he'll write me another of those nice notes telling me to stop writing to him. Yes, just like um, a, a very unhinged cut of the film. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if we're going to do that. We might as well rank it minute by minute, right? I mean... <laughs> yeah, shot by shot. Um, <laughs> uh, moment by moment, I think you mean. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, all right, well, it's been an absolute pleasure letting you listen to me go increasingly mad from being locked in one room for months and months and months on end, just like in Antarctica. <gasps> so I guess I guess we have to say goodbye now. Um, you are called Kestrel Pie on the internet. Yes, and that is Kestrel like the bird and pie like the irrational number. Um, and you are called Kieran J. Walsh on things. Because that's that's my name. That is um, your name. How many digits of pi do you know? Uh, 3.14415? That's all I've got. <laughs> uh, I was going to say nine was the next one. Mm-hmm. I, 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 yeah, I don't know after that. I have not spent any effort really in memorizing digits of pi. Yeah, I, I don't know why I know that. I, I, like, I just round it down to three, which uh, makes mathematicians make a sort of terrible howling noise. Three is probably too rounded. I, <laughs> I go. <laughs> I go with 3.14 or possibly if I'm feeling spicy um 3.142 uh, <laughs> well that brings us to the end of piecast the podcast in which we talk about the number pi oh maybe mm-hmm. we could do that next we can just um review the number pi in yeah, eight I, minute I, sections Eight digits at a time. Um, eight, digits, eight digits at a time. Um, yeah. I, think I mean, that on forever. It's transcendental. Um, yeah, that, the advantage of that podcast format is that we never need to stop. <laughs> um, plus, after a certain point, I, I, you're not going to know what comes next, are you? I mean, yes. <laughs> Yeah, in a way, it would be more exciting than watching the thing, which we've both seen before, and you've extremely familiar with. <laughs> Who do you think is infected? Uh, the number four. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Enough of this. Um, good goodbye, listeners. Goodbye, special guest Peter. Time to stop talking now. Time to stop talking now. Possibly forever.